every single individual makes an impact on the planet every single day. And you can choose what sort of impact you make. Hey there. Thanks for joining for another episode of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation, which celebrates the impactful work being done around the globe and shares the stories of the inspiring individuals who are behind it. My name is Aaron, and I'm the host of Impact in the 21st Century. In this series, we're focusing on the people working to protect our natural world, innovate greener technologies, and ensure that no one's left behind in the process. In each episode, I'll be speaking with an impactful author, founder, activist, or changemaker about the actions they're taking in this space. And in doing so, I also aim to tease out what we can all be doing to lead more impactful lives. But before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about something I'm deeply passionate about, Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education and refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning material, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to entire schools and communities. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to visit simbifoundation.org. And if you'd like to support Simbi Foundation and our podcast, we welcome you to follow us and leave us a rating to help more people discover the podcast. Today, I'm joined by a truly incredible guest, a groundbreaking scientist, the world's leading primatologist, a visionary conservationist, the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute, the co-founder of the Global Roots and Shoots Conservation Network, a prolific author, a United Nations messenger for peace, and so much more, Dr. Jane Goodall. Jane, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Well, it's a great pleasure. So where are you joining from right now? I'm in the house where I grew up in Bournemouth in the south of England, where I came with my sister. Um, and my mother, of course, when World War II broke out. And this is now our family home. It used to belong to my grandmother. She left it to her three daughters. They left it to me and my sisters. And it can never be sold without the consent of every member of the family. (laughs) There must be so much history and, and heritage in this home. There is. I mean, the books behind me are books I had as a child. And the trees out in the garden are the trees I used to climb. Wow. And so you're so you were a five-year-old bunkering down at the beginning of World War II in this home. And you experience food rations, you experience what I would imagine would be a sense of, of hopelessness. And here we are again. Fast forward a few decades, but we've been locked down with COVID and we are on the brink of a war with Ukraine and, and Russia. And, and I'm wondering. When you think about how you've developed this amazing concept of hope, how do you apply some of those learnings and some of those thoughts when when we're right back here? Well, I think what I learned in World War II is helping me now because I think it was about a year that Britain was the only country in Europe that wasn't either defeated or had capitulated to Hitler and the Nazis. And we were not prepared for war. We didn't have a proper navy. We didn't have a proper army. We had an air force with incredibly brave young men, most of whom went out to fight the the German air force and got killed. But we had Churchill. And it was Churchill with his speeches who 
just roused this indomitable spirit of the British public. And there was this feeling all around the country, this unity, we will not give up, we will not be defeated. And that's exactly what we see in Ukraine. And in fact, uh, this president and the previous one both quoted Shakespeare, Churchill, um, when they were, you know, giving speeches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the indomitable human spirit. I mean, look, we're on the right on the south coast, and you know, Germany was not very far away, and our defences along the south coast, for miles along where we are anyway, was a little bit of barbed wire, and some scaffolding just in the sea. And and that was it, but you know the old men came out with their with their pitchforks and they were going to fight on the beaches and they were going to fight in the woods and they were going to fight in the fields. Churchill's famous speech, and at the end he was heard to turn aside to one of his friends and say, "And we'll fight them with bloody broken bottles because that's all we've got." It does sound reminiscent of where we are with Ukraine right now. It's exactly the same, only. It's, I, I don't know if it's worse for them. Um, Churchill managed to bring America into the war, which tipped the balance. We couldn't have held out for much longer. You know, London was being bombed in the same way as Ukrainian cities are being bombed. But it, it's worse in Ukraine. I mean, they seem to be targeting uh, hospitals and targeting all kinds of civilian places where they're sheltering and targeting convoys that are trying to let people escape from the violence. And that's, you know, those are war crimes. I think they are anyway. Yeah. I, I do want to circle back to to this concept of hope and hopelessness. But before we do, I, I want to understand, Jane, how do you go from a five-year-old bunkering down in, in World War II to someone that is studying chimpanzees in the Gombe forest? Help us understand how how you go on that journey? Well, when I was a tiny little girl, I, I was born loving animals. I just, you know, it just was in me from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Maybe something happened when I was in my mother's womb. I don't know, but she doesn't know either. So, um, and I had this incredibly supportive mother. So she didn't get angry when she found age one and a half. I'd taken a whole lot of earthworms to bed with me, <laughs> earth and all. Um, she said, Jane, you were watching them so intently as though you were wondering, how do they walk without legs? And so, you know, instead of getting angry with me, she said, I think we'd better take them back in the garden because they might die here. They need the earth. Mm. And she found books for me about animals. Of course, in the war, they weren't even making children's books. We had very little money. My father had gone off to fight. Books came from the library and books about animals and Dr. Doolittle. I read Dr. Doolittle when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And then Tarzan of the Apes, I found a little tiny secondhand book in a book secondhand bookshop, which I loved that bookshop. I used to save up my few pennies of pocket money. And I could just afford this little book and it was Tarzan of the Apes. Took it up, my favorite tree in the garden that is still there and I read it from cover to cover. And that was when my dream began. I will grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them. There was no thought of being a scientist. Girls weren't in those days. And everybody laughed at me. How will you do that? You know, Africa's far away. We don't know much about it. It's dangerous. Um, there's a war. And anyway, you're just a girl, but not mum. 
She said, if you really want to do something like this, you'll have to work awfully hard, take advantage of every opportunity. And if you don't give up, maybe you find a way. So as everybody knows, I did get to Africa. And I was fortunate in hearing about and going to meet the late Louis Leakey, the famous paleoanthropologist. Mm -hmm. And he gave me this amazing opportunity to study not any animal, but the one most like us. I hadn't even been to college, but he managed to get money for six months. That's where it all began. And at what age in your mind did you already have this vision, this idea of of going to Africa and, and studying chimps? How old were you? No, no, it wasn't chimps. I wouldn't have dreamed about chimps. I would have studied any animal. I just wanted to be out in the wild with, with wild animals. And that was from the age of 10 when I read Tarzan. Understood. And so what was it about chimpanzees that initially fascinated you? Well, it fascinated Leakey because Louis Leakey felt that uh, he believed, which is now accepted, but back then it wasn't, that at some point, maybe six million years ago, humans and chimpanzees had a common ancestor, an ape-like, human-like creature. Mm-hmm. And he spent his life searching for the fossilized remains of early humans. So he felt if Jane sees behavior in chimps today and humans today that's similar, or maybe even the same, possibly we brought it with us along that long evolutionary separate pathway and inherited it from that common ancestor. And that's almost certainly exactly what happened because so much of our behavior is the same, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting one another. Of course, the big breakthrough was seeing a chimpanzee using and making a tool. That's what brought the geographic in. That's what assured me of money to carry on. And, uh, but that, that's how it all started. I would have studied any animal. I mean, nobody had studied chimpanzees. Nobody knew anything about them in the field. Nothing, nothing at all. I was so lucky. I was first. You were. And you, so you were the first person to document chimpanzees in the wild using tools and to actually experience that. And when you saw that, did you know, when you documented, did you know that you were documenting a breakthrough research moment? I knew that science thought that humans and only humans used and made tools. Um, It honestly didn't surprise me because just watching the chimps' behavior, they're so intelligent. Um, But I did know that this was going to be a breakthrough observation, as indeed it was. And it was dear old David Greybeard, the first chimpanzee to lose his fear, because for four whole months they vanished into the forest as soon as they saw me. I mean, I knew given time I could get their trust, but did I have time? I had six months and I didn't want to let Louis Leakey down and I didn't want my dream to end. And so during your studies, you did something quite unique and and fairly unconventional. And you prioritized this notion of proximity and interaction over distance and observation. And I'm wondering, did you do that because you knew you only had six months and you had a lot of research to do, or did that just seem like a more natural, intuitive way to study our family? I knew I had to get them to to accept my presence so that I could get close enough to know them as individuals. Um, Before that, I'd only seen distant behavior through my binoculars. So what, what, I mean, after I'd been with the chimps one and a half years or something, Leakey made me go to Cambridge to get a degree. 
He said, no time for an undergraduate degree. I had to go straight for a PhD. So you can imagine I was nervous. And uh, think how I felt when these learned professors, of whom I was in awe, told me I'd done everything wrong. Chimps should be numbered, not named. You can't talk about them having personality, mind, or emotion. That's unique to us. And you mustn't have empathy with your subject. You've got to be objective. You can't be objective if you have empathy. Well, you know, I had this great teacher as a child who taught me in this respect, these professors were totally, absolutely wrong. And that was my dog, Rusty. You can't share your life in a meaningful way with any animal and not know we're not the only beings with personalities, minds, and emotions. And empathy is important because it gives you a, a, an understanding or a flash of insight as to why animals are behaving in this odd way. And then when you think, yeah, I think, I think it's because of this, then you can put on your scientific hat. And I loved learning how to express myself as a scientist. I really had a wonderful teacher at Cambridge. But then you put that hat on and say, okay, that's what I think now, let me prove it. So you're using the scientific method to validate the hypotheses that you've come up with, but you're, you're using a much more human-based approach where you're interacting with and understanding them as, as fellow beings almost in order to develop those hypotheses. Yeah, mind you, I wasn't interacting with them for ages and ages. Although David let me get a little bit close, I couldn't get very close. So it was, but it was gaining their trust. So I could sit within, I don't know, half of, of the width of a football field, I suppose, and watch them. I still was using my binoculars. And so tell me about day one, you know, you so you arrive in Africa, you go to Tanzania. What was that like? Day one in Gombe. Yeah. Well, day one in Gombe. Um, you know, my mother was there. The British authorities refused to allow me on my own. And she volunteered. Um, amazing. Amazing. So we were the, the British authorities because it was still part of the crumbling British Empire. Mm -hmm. And um, they put us in our tiny boat. We only had a teeny little um, aluminium boat. And they put mum and me and they'd found us a cook. They said we couldn't go without a cook onto the government launch. And going along Lake Tanganyika, Gombe is rising up, the hills rising up out of the lake. And in between the, the, um, the hills are these steep valleys filled with tropical forest which, of course, is where the chimps are. Mm -hmm. And I remember going along and thinking, how will I ever find them? I mean, it seemed so huge as we went along. And it wasn't easy. <laughs> but that first day, okay, so we got to the camp where, where the game ranger came with us. And he said, I think you should put your camp here. Because mm -hmm. on the other side of the stream were five little huts and two game scouts because it was a game reserve back then. And uh, the headman, who turned out later to be the most infamous witch doctor that the region's ever known, but we didn't know that. And so we set up the tent, one tent between us, ex-army, old second hand. And then I climbed up the slope opposite the tent by myself, of course. Mum never came with me. Mm -hmm. and sat there and some baboons barked at me and a bush buck came quite close and then bounded off 
barking and there were birds singing and looking out over the lake. And it was just like, ah, my dreams come true. And you realized you had arrived, yeah. And and so then that that first trip, how long did it take you to, to actually see the chimpanzees? Well, I saw them very fast. There was a, uh, a guy there who knew the hills quite well. Um, mm. So he showed me some of the paths to follow up, up the valley and little places to climb so I could look out over the valley. And I think it had been about a week, but they were far away. They were on the other side of the valley feeding in a big, thickly foliaged tree. So I saw arms and legs and a hand picking a fruit, but not much more than that. <laughs> so I knew they were there and you can hear them and you can get near them. But I mean, not near, but near enough to see with binoculars. But I couldn't identify them or anything like that. And at that stage, I would imagine that you did not understand chimp and you didn't understand the calls that you were necessarily hearing. No, no. The lucky thing was, mum and I both got very, very sick with malaria. We'd been told, oddly, that there was no malaria, so we didn't have any medication. And I think we probably both nearly died. Mum certainly nearly died. I mean, we were really, really sick, and we lay side by side on our little low camp beds, um, those very low ones that you put things together. And um, afterwards, I, I climbed up. I wanted to be totally alone because I felt so weak. Mm-hmm. And then bits and pieces, I climbed up. And through that, I found this wonderful peak. And from there, I could look out over two valleys with just a small walk. And from the, that's the place where I first began to learn about the chimps, the sort of groups they moved around in, the kind of foods they were eating because I could climb down and collect it, um, the calls that they made, how they made nests at night. And so that was the beginning of the study from that peak. And so, Jane, these days, how many, how many uh, chimp calls do you understand? Well, the, the people say there's about 48. Um, I don't know 48. I just know the, the sort of common ones. I probably know about 12. And and how many, um, like an adult chimp, how, how many words or, or calls will they speak in, in, in total? Are you saying 48? So that's what people who study acoustics say. Yeah. I can't hear all those differences. But also there's individual differences. So the most common distance call is the pantoot. And that means me, Jane. And they make it because um, they they may be separated, uh, a young one from the mother, and they make that call and listen. And if they hear an answer, they know where to go. Um, But, you know, there's babies whimpering, there's screams of fear, there's screams of temper and then go away and you know sorry I need to hear the go away again (laughs) that is amazing and and so will different groups that that live in different communities or different um yeah subgroups they they will have different languages no or or dialects no they couldn't understand each other um in different parts of africa there's slight differences in okay. 
young thing. But um, you know, the neighboring communities, there's usually about 50 in a community, they fight each other. They're very territorial and they even wage a kind of primitive war. I was shocked to find that. I thought they were terribly like us, but nicer, you know, watching the wonderful interaction between a mother and her infant and the long-term supportive bonds between family members, even when the older child is fully adult, the bond with the mother remains and with the siblings. They only have one child every five years. And so it's, you know, it's a very slow development. One child every five years. Mm. And so we have, I guess humans have a gestation period of, you know, nine months. What's the chimpanzee? It's about eight and a half. Eight and a half, very similar. Very similar. Everything's very, I mean, they share 98.7% um, of the composition of DNA with us. And the structure of the brain is almost the same. And they're so like us in so many ways. They can be violent and brutal. They can be loving and altruistic. Mm. And so then it makes you think, yeah, but we're different. I mean, you know, we, well, we're talking from two different countries now. And although animals are way more intelligent than science used to admit, uh, there's no animals that could create, you know, a worldwide web and, and electronic communication like we're using now. Right. So like, to me, the big difference is the explosive development of this intellect. So it's very bizarre that this most intellectual creature is destroying its only home. You know, we've only got this little blue and green planet. And when you see it from space, it's surrounded by the immense blackness of outer space. Mm -hmm. And we're destroying it. We don't have another place to go. Though they may be exploring other planets, but I don't think in our lifetimes there'll be any chance of moving elsewhere. So what's happened, I think, we've lost wisdom. We're not making decisions based on how does this decision affect future generations? How does it affect the health of the planet? But rather, how does it help me now? How does it right. help my election campaign? How does it um, help the shareholders meeting? That's short-term gain rather than long-term protection. And so, Jane, did you have this idea that to preserve chimpanzees was it clear to you that you needed to communicate to humans how similar we were um no because i think i would have fought just as hard to protect uh, wild pigs or, or mongooses you know the point mm -hmm. is they're living beings there's we now know thanks to the chimps science has opened its mind and it accepts that other animals i mean down to the octopuses they they're sentient yeah. beings they're intelligent, they feel fear and pain. And they're not ours to destroy. And the natural resources of this planet are not infinite, they're finite. And in some cases, we're using them up faster than nature can replenish them. And so right. we brought this, this um, pandemic on ourselves by our disrespect of animals, pushing them closer together trafficking around the world, selling them in wildlife markets, crowding them into these terribly cruel factory farms, and so on. And 
and we brought on climate change and loss of biodiversity by disrespecting nature. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get together soon and work together, then we're doomed. I mean, we are literally, the planet's heating up. And sadly, this war, you know, with all these terrible machines flying through the air, these machines of destruction, that isn't helping the accumulation of greenhouse gases. Were there any learnings from chimpanzees about yourself? Were, were there any personal learnings? And, and also, were there any learnings from looking at how, how chimp communities operate that you think could be applied to how, how humans could or should operate? What I learned that was useful for me was a lot about mother-child interactions and the importance of the first few years of life that for the child to have support, to have those constantly around to give support in difficult situations. I think that's just as important for humans. And certainly I had it when I was a child, I was really lucky. And I attribute a lot to that support that I had. It wasn't just my mother, you know, in those days we had a nanny and <laughs> nanny, nanny was with me from the time I was born just about. And um, so I see little children and they're dumped in daycare and there's no constant support because people come and go. And it, it, it's, it's as bad for their psychological development, I think, as being deprived of interaction with nature. Because we now know that that's desperately important for good psychological development. And now we run the risk of spending all our time on these little tablets and electronic gadgets. But anyway, um, so I learned a lot about maternal behavior. I learned the importance of uh, being with your child, the importance of not punishing a child until it knows that it's done something bad. I've seen so many examples of that, which makes me so angry. Chimp mother will distract So if the child is being irritating, grabbing her termite tool, she doesn't hit it, smack it till it's about four years old. Up until then, she'll start tickling it. So there she is, termite fishing with one hand, tickling the child with the other, distracting it. And I used that when I was raising my child too. So also chimps are very good at resolving conflict. And Mm -hmm. that's because... Uh, might is always right. You have a, a very strong dominance hierarchy and males always dominate females once they're adult. And so when there's been an aggressive incident, it doesn't matter the right of it, the subordinate one will go up and actually beg for a reassuring touch. And after that, the conflict is over. So you're watching this this mother and child, and the, the mother is uh, using a tool and it's eating termites, and you're watching this distraction. And and years later in life, when, when you're having your own children, you're th- you're thinking back to these these positive teachings and behaviors that you've witnessed. How did how did you kind of cement those learnings from the field and then apply them in your in your day to day? Well, because I had one child and I was still in the field when I had him, and so he was there with me. And um, in fact, there was a little chimp called Goblin, and Mm -hmm. Goblin was a favorite. And 
the other chimps would be playing and they'd be all sleek and glossy at the end. He would be covered with every bit of twig that was lying on the ground. <laughs> and he was a messy eater. And I remember once he tried to eat a very large banana. It was much too big for him. And he obviously got totally full. And he took a huge bite. A funny look came over his face. He gave it a few chews. He spat it into his hand. He looked at it. And then he went smashed over his face. So his face was covered with a uh, chewed banana. But my son, um, he also hate was messy. He hated going on to solid foods when he was one. He was used to me. I breastfed him. And <laughs> so we had goblin grub and grublin gob, and he's still known as grub from that silly time. <laughs> you know, I think the learnings that you're describing are so important. And today, more than ever before, quite often, I, you know, I'll, I'll walk through the park and you will see children in a, in a pram in a, with, um, with an iPad. Yes, in, exactly. a, in a stroller, and 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 they're being essentially pacif- It's a pacifier, right? Yeah, it's awful, and you see it. Um, I I do a lot of studying in airports because I used to be traveling year long, mm-hmm. and you know you watch a child is getting fractious, and so a little tiny one will get the the dummy, the pacifier, but the older one will just get a as you say an iPad or a or a smartphone or something like that. And they just sit there glued to the screen. It's terribly bad for them. It's been proven to be bad. Yeah. And so you just, you have a next generation of people who require that instant gratification, that instant feedback, that that immediate dose response. And you have, I guess, decades of experience seeing the, the negative outcomes of, of, of this, eh? Yes. And, um, you know, I mean, it's so different. Like when I was doing my research, we didn't have, there weren't computers back then. Mm-hmm. And so you went to a library and you browsed around in the library and it was exciting. You found, ah, there, this is an article which, you know, I can use it and you get, get it. It was exciting. Whereas now you just press Google or Ecosia, which I mm-hmm. like because they plant trees with every time you use Ecosia. And, um, and, and apparently the memory is not as good. Children today don't memorize and they're not made, we, we had to learn poetry. We had to learn the dates of the kings and queens of England, which is pointless really, but it teaches you a discipline. And I think that's really important. Some of the issues that you're pointing out with the way that youth today are being pacified, um, th- these, these are problems that we, we deeply see. And, and you know, for the first time in human history, you have higher income countries like the US with declining literacy rates. And I'm, I'm wondering, what, what are the chances we're going to start having, because chimpanzees can be taught to read and write, correct? No, they can be taught sign language. They can be taught sign language. Mm, yeah. So th- not, not the use of a pen or a pencil? No. Well, they like to paint, but they couldn't do words. They don't know words. That's, that's I think, what triggered our explosive intellect, because, you know, we can discuss things, we can talk about the distant past, we can make plans for the distant future, um, which you can only do once you have words, you can teach about things that aren't present. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that, like an interesting thought, and sorry, I'm getting a little off track, but I really do want to hear your scientific mind on this. You know, you watch uh, any any animal that you look at today, for example, a kingfisher diving into the into the pond, 
that is the most advanced kingfisher or, or subspecies that have ever really lived because of our tendency toward complexity, because of Darwinism. And so we're all becoming increasingly complex and sophisticated. And, and, and I'm wondering, do you think there could be any point in future where chimps are evolved enough to be reading or writing or doing anything of the sort? I, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think no. so. And chimps do evolve. I would hope they, they're evolving the right side of the brain, the love, empathy, compassion side, and not the left side, which is cold and scientific. And you know truly what's gone wrong. There's been a disconnect between this clever brain and love and compassion. It's very poetically mm. seated in the heart. Not quite sure why, but that's what we do. So now we have hearts all over the place. But head and heart together in harmony, then you can attain your true human potential. And that's lacking in so many instances. So Jane, you, you founded the Jane Goodall Institute, which has a mission to save chimpanzees from extinction. And I'm wondering what, what motivated you to, to found the Institute and at what stage in your career did you decide that this was required? It was, um, well, I began the chimp study in 1960. In 1986, by then there was, I think it was six other field study sites of chimps. So um, with, with the head of the Chicago Academy of Science, we decided for the first time ever to bring them together. We had a four-day conference. It was mainly to see does chimp behavior differ in different environments, which it does, by the way, different cultures. But we also had a session on conservation. And it was shocking that all of these places, forests were going, chimp numbers were decreasing. And, but I'd already started the Institute by then. That was started in 1977, and this conference was 1986. So the Institute began in order to raise money to carry on with the research and not have to rely only on applying for grants every year. And it wasn't just to save chimps. The JGI is about, well, today it's about making the world a better place for all living things. Mm -hmm. But it was always research on chimps, conservation, education, that, that from the very beginning. And uh, so it was that conference. I went to it, you know, I had my PhD by then. I was at a little research station. They were the best days of my life mm -hmm. out in the forest with a spiritual connection with the natural world. And after the conference, I was a different person. I knew I had to do something to try and help. I hadn't a clue what to do, but I just knew that now things were going to change. And that, that led to one of the major breakthroughs, which was <clears throat> I got together some money to visit these research sites, uh, all but one. And well, I was learning a lot about the problems faced by the chimps, the destruction of the habitat, being caught in wire snares, mothers shot to sell babies as pets or for circuses and something, and, um, and for bushmeat in some mm. countries. But I was also learning about the plight of so many African people, the terrible poverty, the lack of health and education, the degradation of the land, um, desperation. And when I flew over the tiny Gombe National Park, which had been part of the great equatorial forest belt when I began, by the late 80s, 
it was just this little island of forest surrounded by bare hills and more people living there than the land could support, struggling to survive, destroying the environment to make more land to grow food or to make some money from charcoal or timber. Mm-hmm. And so that's when it hit me. If we don't help these people find ways of making a living without destroying the environment, we can't save chimps, forests or anything else. And that led to our Chakari program, which is now in six African countries. It's lifting people out of poverty. It's helping them understand because we work with them to improve their lives. It's helping them to understand that protecting the environment isn't only for wildlife, as most conservationists were basically, you know, it's people here, animals here. No, they were part of it. And so they realize it's for their own future too. And they've become our partners, partners in conservation. And so Jane, through through this process, I mean, I understand that, you know, when I've researched Jane Goodall Institute, I find so much of your work so deeply inspiring. You've I believe you've led the longest running study on chimpanzees. You've protected over 3.4 million acres of natural habitat, um, published hundreds of, of academic papers at the Gombe Research Center. Uh, I understand you've, that you've arrived at this really beautiful, holistic, kind of nine strategy approach um, that bring community-centered conservation into the fold. And, and I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot of people who want to understand how you do what you do and, and why you do it. And, and how did you arrive at these this kind of nine-folded approach to, to, to conservation? Well, just by seeing what had happened and understanding that if we didn't help the people, that was it. And, you know, getting a wonderful team together, working right from the beginning with the people. It wasn't a bunch of arrogant white people going into a poor village and saying, oh, this is what we'll do to help you. No, no, no. It was a local, a team of local Tanzanians sitting down with the village elders and asking them, what can we do to help? What do you want most? Well, more food. So restore fertility to overused farmland without chemical pesticides and fertilizers and so on. And, you know, scholarships to keep girls in school, Mm. microcredit so that people can get money to start their own small environmentally sustainable businesses like a tree nursery, for example, or a few chickens. And um, providing family planning because, you know, it's well received because people used to have eight to 10 children. Mm-hmm. They know way out of poverty is a good education. They can't afford to educate eight or 10 children. And so it, the number's going down and that's desperately important. You know, I mean, there's, there's seven point, well, somebody said 7.7, it keeps changing around 7.7 billion of us on the planet. Mm -hmm. And already we're using up natural resources in some places faster than nature can replenish them. And it's estimated there'll be closer to 10 billion of us in 2050. So if we carry on with business as usual in a selfish way, then what's going to happen? So we have to think about these things. Think about alleviating poverty. Think about reducing our unsustainable lifestyles, most of us, you know, we far more than we, than we actually need. And many people have far more than they actually want. <laughs> and we have to think about respect for each other and for the animals and for the environment. 
And my biggest hope is, of course, is the youth, the Roots and Shoots program for young people. And so you recently celebrated the Roots and Shoots 30th anniversary. And I'd love to know more about the program and uh, why, why it's important to your legacy. Well, it's important because, you know, we're, we're raising a lot of money to work with communities in six different countries to protect habitat. And of course, if you protect the habitat, you don't just protect chimps, you protect everything else that's in the habitat. Mm-hmm. And um, so traveling around the world, I was also raising awareness and money and realizing that if the next generation isn't better stewards than we are, then there's no point. It'll just fade away, you know, sustainability, sustainability. So Roots and Shoots began with 12 high school students in Tanzania who were concerned, some of them worried about environmental issues, some of them worried about street children with no homes, some of them worried about <clears throat> the bad treatment of dogs and cats and poaching in the parks. And I told them to get all their friends together, and we had about 30 from eight different schools. And we developed this idea, main message every single individual makes an impact on the planet every single day. And you can choose what sort of impact you make. And because I learned about the interconnection of all things when I was in the forest, then every group we decided would choose three projects. They would choose them, not top down, bottom up. One to help people, one to help the environment, one to help animals. And we're now in 65 countries and We have members in kindergarten, university, more and more like the staff of big corporations. And we bring them together as often as as we can. And they're just learning values, just without being taught, like much more important than the color of your skin, your language, your culture, your religion, is the fact we're all human. We all bleed, we all cry, we all laugh. It, it's it's so inspiring what you're doing with Roots and Shoots. And just on that note, um, if people want to get involved, what, what can they do if our listeners want to support or get involved in Roots and Shoots in particular? What, what can they do right now? If they're in Canada, they contact the Jane Goodall Institute, um, which you know all about. Sure and do. Roots and Shoots is actually, I mean, you don't even have to be registered. You can just say, okay, me and my six friends, we're going to do something to make the world a better place. And you can be part of Roots and Shoots, but we want people registered. We want to share what they do. We want to put it out on the network. We want to share it around the country and around the world. Um, I know in Canada, there's a lot of Roots and Shoots moving out into the Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. And it's it's growing very fast all around the world. You know, we've got about 2,000 groups in China, for example. We've only got one in Russia, but which is a shame. But that's a danger, you know, that because of Putin and because of what's happening in Ukraine, Russians will be branded as evil, like Germans were after World War II. Yeah. It's so untrue. Thousands of Russians hate the war. Thousands of Russians were told it was just an exercise. Mothers are bravely demanding their sons back and mm-hmm. protesting in the street, even though they'll go to prison, probably be beaten or even killed. And in Belarus, it's the same. It is. And my mother was so wise after World War II, 
when you know there was a hate of German, actually a fear. If you heard a German accent, a German language, you just got this cold feeling inside. Um, she let me go off to live with the family in Germany. They wanted someone to help their children speak good English because she didn't tell me at the time, but she wanted me to understand that just because of Hitler and the Nazis doesn't mean that German people are bad. It's the same with Putin and his his acolytes. It absolutely is. And it sounds like you had the most incredible mother. You know, when I think of you, there's one word that comes to mind and it's it's hope. You know, you, you've got a 1990 book, 1999 book, Reasons for Hope. Um, you've got the book of hope, your newest book from 2021, which is absolutely beautiful. You have your hope cast, which is your podcast celebrating hope. And you're able to speak about all of the atrocities and negative things that are happening in the world while spreading this message of hope. And I'm wondering, how do you arrive at this level of hope? And, and I know you've actually had some amazing epiphanies associated with hope, and I'd love you to share them with us just to provide a better framework for how we can employ hope in our lives when it, when it feels difficult. Well, I think, you know, that more important than that is to, to say straight out, hope isn't just wishful thinking. And I'm thinking of the human species right now as so though we're at the mouth of a very, very long, dark tunnel. And right at the end, there's a little shining star. That's hope. But there's no point sitting at the mouth of the tunnel and saying, I hope the star will come to us. Mm -mm. We've got to roll up our sleeves and crawl under, climb over, work our way around all the obstacles in that dark tunnel before we can reach that shining star. And there are many, there's climate change, there's loss of biodiversity, there's poverty, there's overconsumption. Right now there's war and so much more. And we've got to get together and take action before it's too late. So when I meet people who've lost hope, you have this expression, think globally, but act locally, but it's the wrong way around. I defy anybody today who's in the slightest bit intelligent to think globally about the problems and not feel depressed. I mean, you have to, it's, it's horrible what's happening. Mm -hmm. So I say to these people who've lost hope and feel helpless, well, what about where you live? Um, is there anything that bothers you there? Oh, they bother about um, homelessness sometimes. They bother about stray dogs in the streets, or they bother about the litter that people dump, or you know, littered rivers and litter going out into the sea, pollution. Um, so, okay, well, you care about this. Well, why don't you get some friends and see if you can do something about it? You do something about it. Even if it's just writing to legislators in your city to try and halt project which is going to cut down a patch of forest to build yet another unnecessary shopping mall and when you when you do something like that and you succeed it makes you feel good mm -hmm. and the great thing is when you feel good you want to feel better so you do more and the more you do the more you inspire others so you're taking others with you so we're going down this tunnel everybody doing more and gathering more and gathering more and gathering more until we tackle the problems together and solve them. We must. 
And, and so what I'm hearing from you is that in order to stop feeling hopelessness, that taking immediate action, positive action, even on a small scale, is yeah. what is required to start that process. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you see, that's Roots and Shoots. They do these activities. And once, the, once young people know what the problems are and we empower them to take action, they're changing the world. I mean, they're so full of energy and enthusiasm. I was doing a talk yesterday um, with, uh, I think it was about 15 children aged about 10, and they'd all got a question for me. And um, they, they're just shining uh, all over the world. They're doing actions that literally are changing the world and they change their parents. So there was this lovely story CEO of a big corporation, I was talking to him about a month ago. And he said, Jane, for about eight, 10 years, I've been really working to get my, my, uh, my business ethical, like treating my customers right, paying proper wages along the supply chain, making sure we don't harm the environment where we're getting our products and so on. And he said three reasons. One, writing on the wall. Look, we're using up these natural resources too fast and they'll come to an end, that's the end of my company. Two, consumer pressure. People are beginning to understand that this is cheap because of unfair wages. Uh, this is cheap meat because it comes from a factory farm, horrible cruelty, um, and so on. So people are making choices and that's driving business to take a different course. But he said, what really did tip the balance for me was my little girl, she was, she was eight or 10. And she came home from school one day and she said, Daddy, they tell me that what you're doing is hurting the planet. That isn't true, is it, Daddy? Because it's my planet, isn't it? It's about empowering the next generation, which, which you and Roots and Shoots are very much doing. Yeah, we need a critical mass of young people to change the world to be out there in decision-making positions. And we're getting there, we're getting there. We've you got are. ministers of environment and teachers and lawyers who've all been through roots and shoots. They all keep their values, respect, hmm. respect, respect. You know, the golden rule that's common to all major religions, do to others as you would have them do to you. Add in animals and the environment and you have the perfect world. Agreed. And you know, I'll have to tell you, after that, I have to tell you one story about that book of hope, which please do. Uh, you know, well, you know my reasons for hope: it's the, the power and energy of young people, the resilience of nature. Give her a chance, nature will come back. Animal species can be given another chance. The, the intellect, where we're beginning to make good technology, and the indomitable human spirit—people who tackle the impossible and succeed—it's all around us. All around us. Lots of doom and gloom in the media, but we need to give more attention to the incredible things and the amazing people that are going on. I mean, look with the Ukraine, look at the outpouring of help and love and compassion and people offering up their homes and raising money. And it's after every disaster, we see this happening. Anyway, to go back to this book, which took a long time to write, by the way, it was difficult. But, um, and thank goodness the Ukraine war hadn't started. But anyway, it was written before that. And uh, 
I've got a friend in Los Angeles who has a friend who is a doctor in the psychiatric unit of a big hospital. And this young woman came in, patient, and she tried to commit suicide once, maybe twice. So she was put on suicide watch. And the doctor was really upset because she was a beautiful young woman, very young, she was about 26. And so when she went away that night, she went down to the hospital bookshop and was looking for a book. And then lit up on one shelf, she saw the Book of Hope. So she took it down, she looked at it, she bought it and took it up and gave it to this young woman. Well, the woman who was watching said she read it all night. She finished it. And then she went back to the beginning and then she looked at different chapters. And in the morning, they discharged her because her whole mental attitude had changed. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Yeah. But but to be honest, you know, it, it, it is remarkable. But when I think about what is in this book of hope, when I think about how you break down the amazing human intellect, like, like the four reasons for hope, right? The amazing human intellect, the resilience of nature, power of young people, and the indomitable human spirit. I've never heard a better thesis for why we should be hopeful. And that gives me reason to be hopeful. The one thing that I, I've been trying to understand is how do you arrive at this, at these four? How did you arrive? Was it an epiphany or were these things that were just learned over time? I mean, I've lived nearly 88 years on this planet. And I've seen things happening and it just it just evolved. There was no epiphany. There was no sitting down thinking, you know, what are the reasons for hope? They just were bubbling up inside me from things that I'd experienced. That's truly beautiful. Last question for you. And then I know you do have a lot of other things on the go, but do you, do you think you have any more books in you? I don't know. I've, I've thought the only thing I can do, right? I mean, I've, I've never been so busy as during this pandemic. It's, I haven't had one day off the whole time, not one weekend, not one holiday. It's just been Zooms and Skypes and interviews and podcasts and video messages and, of course, all the email, 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 email. And um, so I thought of how I did this book. I don't know. Actually, it started before the pandemic, but it ended during the pandemic. And I've just been sitting here. You'd laugh if you saw where I am. I mean, you think of a nice big desk and everything. It's a, it's a little, see how wide my hands are? That's mm -hmm. what the laptop is on. And um, there's a little table beside me with a lamp. And there's a bed. And there's um, some ring lights. And there's a microphone down here and one little chair, and I have to tread over wires. <laughs> try, not, try not to unplug things. It's a tiny wee space. And do you think it's conducive to... to I'd love to be able to read another book, no pressure. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm collecting up stories, stories with, which are real stories that have meaning and can be grouped mm. in some way because then that's no work, really. It's just stories to reach people's hearts. And some of them have been told, but many of them haven't. So tell me, what other book could I do? I've done, I've done Reason for Hope. I've done Hope for Animals and Their World. I've done Seeds of Hope, Harvest for Hope. I did the, the um, Chimpanzees of Gombe, the big scientific one, which isn't written in a scientific way. 
the Shadow of Man and through a window, the two books about Gombe. What else could I do? You know, something that comes to mind for that I, that I genuinely think you could do is you, I, I find it so deeply inspiring how, how adaptable humans are and it gives me a reason for hope. But, but honestly, when I think about what you've experienced in what will be your 88 years, I mean, 20 years ago, you weren't thinking about Zoom and now you're a pro podcaster. And, <laughs> you know, j- just, I think it's deeply inspiring to see a human, a fellow human, just like you, who there, there's so many people who are trying to figure out how to adapt in this ever-changing world. And I don't know, Dr. Jane Goodall's hundred tips for adaptability in a changing environment. <laughs> I don't think so. But you might do it as an institute and gather it up from around the world. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jane, I, I know you've got a busy day ahead, but I, I just want to thank you for a truly inspiring conversation. It's 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 really special to have the opportunity to speak with you. I, I can honestly tell you I've never been so inspired by one person. I've learned a great deal, and I know our listeners absolutely will. And if our listeners want to keep up to date with your work with the Jane Goodall Institute, or if they'd like to get involved and contribute to your mission to protect chimpanzees in our ecosystems, what's the best place for them to visit? Well, I think if they, you know, now that we do have all this technology available, they can just go to Google or to Ecosia. I really like Ecosia because every time you use it, it plants trees. Mm-hmm. And not just sticking them in the ground, but the right tree in the right place at the right time of year and looked after. I know because we work with them. Anyway, um, you can go there and you can look up the Jane Goodall Institute. You can look up Roots and Shoots, and then it will direct you to where you can get the information in the country where you are. So in Canada, it will be Jane Goodall Institute Canada. It's all there. And you can learn a lot about what we do from those websites. We'll be sure to make to, to get our listeners to those locations. We'll also be linking in the description um, ways where you can buy all of your books um, and, and support your work. And um, we'll give a shout out to Ecosia as well. So with that, I, uh, I'm wishing you a beautiful evening ahead. And thank you for everything. Thank you, too. It's lovely talking to you, by the way. Yeah, you as well. You you as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Impact in the 21st Century by Simbi Foundation. We hope you found listening to it as meaningful as we did. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to us on whichever platform you're listening from and leave us a review or a comment to let us know your favorite moment. Or feel free to recommend a guest for future episodes. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning material, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to entire schools and communities. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to visit simbifoundation.org. Thanks for taking the time to listen, and we look forward to bringing you more stories of positive impact in the next episode.